0: Welcome to Positive Disintegration, A Path to Authenticity. In this episode, Chris and I are talking to Katie McDaniel and Emily Strand of the Podiversity podcast, on which I'm also the technical director. So for me, this is a particularly special episode because it's bringing together two podcasts I work on, a bunch of friends who I adore, and two of my favorite subjects. We talk about the disintegration we went through on Podiversity, renaming ourselves and realigning our vision. We talk about themes in positive disintegration that we see through the book series, values, difficult emotions and characters who experience disintegration. So get out your wands, crack open a butterbeer as we delve into the pages of Harry Potter and the path of positive disintegration. G'day, beautiful listeners, and welcome to Positive Disintegration. I'm Emma Nicholson. I'm Dr. Chris Wells. Chris, I'm so excited about today's episode. I'm jumping out of my skin.
1: I'm excited too, although I have to say I know that you're very excited. I know. But I'm also
0: excited. Because we're talking about Potter today, one of my favorite subjects. That's
1: right. And I've heard, I don't know, maybe a handful of episodes of Potterversity, and I'm excited to talk with Katie and Emily today. I know, and it's good
0: to have friends on. Um, so that's also made me excited because I've been lucky enough to, you know, have some good conversations about Potter on Potterversity with these guys, and it's going to be cool to talk about it kind of through the lens of positive disintegration. So it's like my two favorite subjects are colliding.
1: Yeah, I just listened to the episode you did with them about food, which we'll put in the show notes, of course, but. It was great. And I was listening to you, Emma, and thinking that you are such an expert about Harry Potter. (laughs) Like it's, I think our listeners are going to really enjoy this crossover.
0: Well, I'm going to welcome our guests straight on. So welcome to Emily Strand and Katie McDaniel, the hosts of the Potterversity podcast.
2: Hey, thanks for having us on. Yeah, thanks for having us, Emma and Chris.
0: And I'm going to break tradition here and actually get you guys to read out your own bios because you're such pros at this.
2: Well, I won't read it out because I don't have it in front of me, but if I don't know it, then shame on me. Um, <laughs> I'm you Emily Strand. positive
3: disintegration, em- Emily.
2: I, I know. You yeah. know
3: yourself in a more authentic way.
2: I'm going to try. I'm going to try. Okay. So I'm Emily Strand. I live in Columbus, Ohio, and I teach for a local Catholic nursing college. I teach um, religious studies courses and also cultural competency courses. I am, as Emma said, co-host of the podcast Potterversity with Katie, and I'm also co-host and co-creator of the podcast Meet Father Rivers with my partner in that, Eric Stiles. Um, And I do a lot of writing and publishing in the realm of popular culture like Harry Potter, Star Wars, and Star Trek. Um, I have got a couple of uh, new anthologies out that I helped co-edit with Amy h. Sturgis and um and I love to explore the religious themes, especially of popular culture.
3: Yeah, and I'm Katie McDaniel. I'm a professor of history at Marietta College in Marietta, Ohio. And I've co-edited a couple of Harry Potter anthologies, Harry Potter for Nerds 2, and then uh, Emily and I have an anthology coming out based on the podcast, Potterversity Essays Exploring the World of Harry Potter, and that's going to be coming out, I hope, very soon. We are committed, I think, to bringing sort of scholarly approaches to Potter studies, but also, I think like Emily, I'm interested in all kinds of elements of popular culture. My focus tends to be on the intersections of history and popular culture. And I've written articles and done presentations on uh, the works of Connie Willis. She writes about science fiction, uh, (laughs) where time traveling historians go back to various crises uh, in the past. And I wrote about Star Wars (laughs) just recently, uh, with Emily's help and guidance. Thank you very much, Emily. And uh, so, yeah, I'm, and I'm always interested in broadening, broadening that out to, to look at really anything that explores the past and the role of history and the way we think about ourselves in the present.
0: Thanks for introducing yourselves to our
1: listeners. Yes, thank you. That was great. Um, I'm very excited to have you both with us. And if you guys don't mind, I'm wondering if we could kick off this episode by talking about the fact that the podcast used to be called Something Else – But a controversy forced you to re-examine your name and branding and and change things. And I I wonder if we can talk about that.
3: Yeah, it's a little dicey. It's a little tricky. So we uh, were part of a podcast called Reading, Writing, Rolling. And we focused on academic discussions of really anything written by J.K. Rowling. And if you remember like COVID COVID summer, uh, I have to say I was just burying myself in the Potter stuff because everything else was so hard. And uh, I was, it was sort of my refuge. My COVID refuge was sort of how, how I felt about um, how I felt about the Potter world. And then in June, JK Rowling said some really, I would say not well-informed and, um, you know, kind of nasty stuff uh, about trans people. And it sort of took away my refuge there. (laughs) Uh, We really, as a, as a team, and it was Emma, Emily, me, and our producer, Lori Beckoff. We had to think about, you know, what do we want to do going forward? And, you know, what what do we think? Like, how, how does this align with what we want to do with our show? And of course, I think like a lot of people, we had felt like the author of the Potter Stories was, you know, kind of on our side in terms of inclusivity and really letting people be who they genuinely are. And this, uh, it didn't hit us the right way. I think if we're talking about kind of ideas about personality that are based, based on values, our question was, how do we make sure that what we're doing is still aligned with our values given what happened in June? And so we really talked about it a lot, I think, and had to make some changes as a result. Emily, does that sound like like what, how you remember it? That's just my personal yeah. story. No, it does. It does. It really
2: does. I think I was in kind of like uh, some denial about it. Like in my mind, I was like, well, maybe she's not going to get the invite to my fantasy dinner party, you know, but at the (laughs) same... You know, but but what is it really, you know, is this is this all going to blow over in a couple of weeks, you know? But then the more that we got into it, I realized it really was, you know, and, and I was especially kind of queuing off of um, you, Katie, and you, Emma, and our um, producer, Lori Beckoff, and seeing, you know, how much upset this was causing. You know, I mean, it's easy to kind of let something roll off when it doesn't personally affect you. And I, I definitely admit that I was guilty of that. And it was funny because, you know, when the suggestion came to change our podcast name, I was really against that at first because, you know, as somebody who who has produced podcasts, you know, I know that it's difficult to like keep your kind of brand going and pe- keep people interested in your podcast and changing your name is a really difficult obstacle to get past, you know. And then it was funny because um, and Katie, I hope you don't mind if I spill the beans here, but it was Katie's dad that suggested the new name of Potterversity. And the minute I heard that name, I was like, yes, let's go with that. Because <laughs> I was like, that's just such a
3: better <laughs> name for our podcast.
1: Yeah. Than and right. my, my it's dad such will, a great name.
3: Yeah. My dad will enjoy the shout out a lot, Emily. Yeah, <laughs> Thank he's you, very, Dr. McDaniel.
2: He's very pleased Thank with you. himself. <laughs> oh, he should be pleased with himself because that is just, is it's, I love the name because it sums up in just one word what we're about. And it's, yeah. I feel like it's easily recognizable what, you know, when you say the name is Potterversity, they're like,
3: oh, I know, I know just what you do. You know, like, yes, we right. do that. Yeah. yeah. So and I, I was so pleased. It centers the show on what we're really most interested in, which is the Harry Potter universe. And that universe, I think, is still a place where our values align in terms of those ideas of inclusion and equality and um, all of those things that, that I think we liked about it. And so we were able to kind of center the podcast there, which I think felt felt really good. And from the title on, uh, I think that was helpful. Emily, is that how you remember it too?
0: And like Emily, I think when that first lot of tweeting came out, I was like, okay, let's just wait and see because I'm big on second chances. And I think I was a bit deluded going, surely she's going to see the error of her ways. And I've, I've made the sta- mistake in the past of thinking that because I can see something and that's how my values align, that other people are going to see it the same way. But it turned out to not be the case. So I was actually quite happy with the decision that we made to move away from that. And I think, Katie, like you said, it's good to keep an inclusive space because let's face it, Potter fandom is massive, probably the biggest fandom at the time. And I think it was important for us to maintain that space and say, there's still a place where everybody is welcome. And you know, in our reading of the text, we see themes of inclusivity and we see those themes about values and it's important to, well, it was definitely important for me that we kept that space going so that we weren't abandoning the fandom. It had nothing to do with her. It had everything to do about how can we serve the fans and keep this alive for them.
1: Well, it's important. I mean, as somebody who was a big Potter fan myself, it was really hard to take when that happened and when she continued to say things that I would call transphobic. Yeah, I mean, it's hard. Like, why should we have to give up these characters and these stories that we love so much? And I can't remember which one of you it was who recommended Monsters, A Fan's Dilemma. But I put it, was it you, Emily?
2: Yes, it was. I'm obsessed with that book right now.
1: I put it on my wish list. I have to, as soon as I have time for, you know, non-work reading, I'm going to read that book because this is a real problem. I mean, it is a fan's dilemma when you love something that has been created in whatever artistic, you know, manner that is. and, And then you find out the person who created it is... Well, problematic. I mean, and we're all human, of course, but there are different, there are levels of
2: problematic, I would say. I can't wait to hear what you think about that book because I really just got so much out of it. And um, for me, the transition to, to being Potterversity also had the added bonus of showing our listeners that we're focused on the text of the books, um, for the most part. Of course, we do, we, you know, as Katie always says very wisely, we don't we don't focus on her. We don't let her off the hook either, you know, but we, we don't put the focus solely on her or even majority on her. We, we really try to focus on the text. And that's part of why I liked where the transition, you know, ended us up because we were there now with a podcast that's really squarely focused on the text. Questions of the author and authorship and authorial intent, things like that come into play. That's a sidebar. But what we're focused on is the text and these problematic authors really do Almost give us the gift of making us focus on the works themselves, and I know you know there's some schools where you do sometimes bring in the author and their background and and as a point of analysis. But yeah, so so I'm 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 pleased with where we ended up, and and Chris, I hope you'll you'll send me a little message when you've read that book and tell me what you think. I will definitely.
3: I, I was going to say too that I, you know just to really re-emphasize what Emma and Emily have both just said, I actually felt really good about it because I felt like what we came up with was better than what we had. And so it felt like we were moving towards something better and more positive and more what we wanted to do and be. And so it wasn't like a retreat. It wasn't (laughs) like we were having to to muffle ourselves or anything. It felt, I think it felt really, it felt like a really good direction to be going in. And I've, I've really, I've really appreciated what we've been able to build with under this new name, Potterversity. I'm really, I'm really proud of it.
0: I'm so glad you brought that up, Katie, because when I thought back about it and the process that we went through, it was almost like a miniature disintegration in the fact that we had to stop and yes. we had to self reflect and we had to think about, well, what are our values? What do we stand for? You know, what are we even going to talk about that aligns with that? So we made some decisions about, you know, we're not going to talk about Kulmer and strike. And we, we set those ground rules for ourselves. And you're right. It was more powerful going forward, but it just shows the value of taking that self reflection step and thinking to yourself, what do I value? What is important to me and how can I act in alignment with that so I'm walking my talk? And we did that as a little group. And I remember all those, you know, early morning, whatever the time zone, you know, conversations that we had. Or late
3: night. Yeah,
0: six (laughs) o'clock on a Monday morning, like talking about what are we going to do with the podcast? Um, But it was really fruitful and really helpful. But it just goes to show that, you know, whether it's in a group setting or by yourself, that act of self-reflecting is really important and it can give you some really solid direction moving forward.
3: And I've really loved how that's, I think, strengthened our relationship as a team. I think that, you know, we learned something about each other and we're able to talk about some things that are really difficult and we did some good problem solving. And I just think it's been it's been positive for our group also. That's awesome,
1: and I have to say that Potterversity is a fantastic name. And I really encourage our listeners to to listen to your podcast if they have an interest in Harry Potter because it's wonderful. I really have enjoyed every episode I've listened to, and it's interesting to reflect on because you know I was just getting to know Emma, and I listened to her episode about Petunia Dursley with you guys, and it was I was like, wow, I I mean, not to out myself as a total novice of podcasting when I started one, but I was like, I just, this wasn't a format that I was really familiar with. And so, you know, I knew that Emma was your editor. And so, and then, you know, she had done that episode and I listened to it and I was like, wow, how cool is it that there's like podcasts about Harry Potter and they're talking about it in this kind of scholarly way. It's really good.
3: Emma's bet on Petunia is really amazing, and I think one of the strengths of it is Petunia is this character that we have all these assumptions about, and we don't really necessarily even think of her as having an arc in the story. But Emma just very brilliantly brought that out through very close reading of the text. Uh, I do lo- I love your interpretation. Of Petunia Dursley Emma and really brought so much to that character that I think I had I had not even been interested in before and I was like oh no Petunia's really fascinating I felt the same way I didn't know what she
1: was going to say about Petunia that would make me like her better or you know get like get some depth on that character but oh my gosh Emma you were amazing
2: I feel like the definitive version of that, Emma, is not the Petunia article is not yet written because then you got to factor in the actor's portrayal of Marva, Karasi, andor in the show, andor. So you have to kind of bring that all together. Totally agree. (laughs) Totally agree. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah. It's funny that you're talking about that episode because it was a good exercise in putting myself in someone else's shoes. And seeing things from their perspective and it's funny because in the theory Dabrowski talks about using subject object thinking so rather than saying I'm the subject I'm the center of the universe everyone else is object they're all numbers and shape of actually flipping that dynamic round and, and trying to use empathy to get into someone else's place and that's really what I use to get into the nuts and bolts of Petunia it's like well how would I feel If it was me in her shoes and some, you know, wizarding war was going on and consuming my sister and Dumbledore's dropping my nephew on my doorstep like an Amazon package when I've got my own baby. And like, I started to actually come to her perspective a lot. And even though, you know, I probably don't hold a lot of her opinions and stuff, I could actually see things from her perspective, which actually gave me a lot of empathy. So that was a, that was a really cool exercise. And Chris, I know you say you had no idea of what you were doing with podcasting. I had no idea what I was doing with theory. So we just combined our skills like one to twin powers and went from there. <laughs>
3: That's right. Where are our Wonder Twin rings? You need this. I was just going to say about being a novice to podcasting. Like, I mean, who's not a novice to pod? I feel like it's this weird new thing that every you know that a lot of people are doing now, and uh, it's kind of everywhere. And when I started, I had no idea. And actually, one of my weak points is my oral expression, (laughs) and I'm also and another weak point is technology. So that it combines the two of them. I never, ever, ever would have thought I would be doing something like this, but it's really fun. It's a good excuse to have great conversations with people you've always wanted to talk with. Uh, So I really, I really enjoy it. And you all do a nice job on your podcast too, Chris and Emma.
2: Yes, I've been enjoying episodes of your podcast for sure. Yeah. And Katie, I would say these used to be your weaknesses and aren't anymore. And I would also <laughs> I will also just jump in and say that I actually went to a podcasting conference in like two thousand and seven.
3: <laughs> you know wow. So I was wow. early adopter. I, know
2: I was an early adopter of podcasts. So I just, the whole thing just like totally lit me up. I just thought it was so cool. And I used to go around saying to people like, podcasts are the future. You don't understand. We need to be doing everything with podcasts. And everybody thought I was so cuckoo crazy. And like now, like the job that I was in at the time, I don't even have that job anymore. Like it's been years and years, but I just sometimes want to go back and be like, see, (laughs) (laughs)
0: it's storytelling it's just a different Mm, mode of storytelling you know we see the value in like books and stuff it's another way for people to share their stories all
1: right well let's kick off questions with values and the importance of values where do we see themes of values in harry potter and especially values that are determined for yourself or oneself
2: well i'll i'll jump in because i'll be honest the the first thing i think of is When Harry is in Madame Malkin's for the first time, and she's fitting him with robes and Draco Malfoy, you stole mine,
3: Emily. Oh, I'm so
2: sorry. (laughs) (laughs) I was so proud of Harry in that moment, and you know, being uh, being an older reader, even when I first read it, um, I feel like I can say that. Um, But I was very proud of him because I thought, gosh, he can smell a rat. And sorry to call you a rat, Draco, but you you were in that scene, and and you know, Harry really, really just with his gut you know, with not a lot of good upbringing, he can tell that this kid is not the type of person for him and he makes a choice instead of kind of desperately clinging to any offer he gets from a friendship from someone in the wizarding world. You know, he says, no, I think I'm good. I think I'm good, you know? And so, and I like that because he, he, you know, maybe he wouldn't have gotten any other offers of friendship, but but he knew he didn't want that one. And I I really admire that in Harry.
3: To me, that's where you see that Harry does have some internal core that has not actually been damaged by his experience with the Dursleys. I don't know if it's reinforced because he's always around, you know, Dudley, but also the Dursleys themselves are social climbers. And, you know, maybe he just can recognize that because he's on the outside of that and he's been oppressed by it. I'm not sure, but he's at least able to, he has some sense of himself and that, you know, he doesn't need that. He's not trying to win friends and influence people in that way. And I think it speaks to something that is, I don't know. I mean, you you wonder, did he get that in his first year of life? That seems very unlikely. He was living, you know, with his parents. But there is something in him that he has. And you can see that right away. And, uh, you know, it's not just in his politeness, you know, even to Hagrid or what have you. um, But also in his his willingness to, like you say, call a rat a rat (laughs) somewhat politely. It's funny
0: because Harry, um, he seems to have that, what Nebraska would call positive maladjustment. So he sees what's going on around him and he goes, you know what? No, that's not for me. And he defines himself and Dumbledore actually calls that out, uh, I think in the Half-Blood Prince when he's talking to the Dursleys and says, he might not have been as well looked after as Dumbledore would have liked, but he was whole. And then comments about he avoided the terrible damage that got inflicted on Dudley. And maybe that's what Dumbledore's alluding to. Like Harry doesn't get it because let's face it, there's a lot of shit Harry doesn't (laughs) doesn't get. But I think Dumbledore's talking to that. Harry came out well grounded with his own values that are, Defined in a way that makes him empathetic to other people, um, and accepting and inclusive, whereas Dudley turned out to be a little snot. But the the thing that I find interesting is when he gets to the Chamber of Secrets and he questions all that because he's like, I'm so much like right. Riddle. Am I the heir of Slytherin? Like, then even though he knows he's not setting the baskets on people, he starts questioning who he is because of this. Uh, and then Dumbledore comes in and says no it's not about your attributes it's about your choices and and how you act and reminds him that Harry chooses to act in a particular way that lines up with those values
1: yeah, he and chooses gonna... not to go into slytherin oh sorry yeah no that's but, what I, was you know, say I mean too
3: yeah not slytherin not slytherin
1: that's right i mean not slytherin that's a very clear choice
3: yeah based on what he's heard from hagrid who also you know Hagrid is is, is not uh, glamour that (laughs) Hagrid represents. And Harry's able to see the value of Hagrid and Hagrid's opinion. And then, you know, it's clear to him, like, the other houses would be okay. He's not, like, aiming for Gryffindor particularly. But he knows that he doesn't want to go into the house that had all the bad wizards produced from that. And then that's what Emma is, you know, so interesting about book two you know he's questioning some of that and i think it has to do with i was reading a little bit on positive disintegration and a lot of the beginning stage is you know you absorbing what the society says is is you you know is supposed to be who you are and what you're sh- what you should be doing and so on and there's some way when he you know is caught speaking parseltongue that somehow this, everybody else uses this to tell Harry what he's supposed to be and who he's supposed to be, and it challenges his own self-perception in a way that really causes him distress but leaves him, you know, in a stronger, more secure position at the end. It just seemed like it matched really well with the positive disintegration theory.
0: Yeah, you're right. He questions it to the point where he goes to the sorting hat and says, did you make the right choice? putting me in gryffindor should you put me in mm-hmm. slytherin like he he's at that point of doubt where he doesn't even know in himself whether or not anymore he should be in gryffindor or not
3: and you know the reminder that it's that he has agency right that he has self actualization i think is such an important you know one of those moments where dumbledore talks to him at the end and one of the most important ones, a common friend of ours, Lana Whitehead, has that on the signature of her email. <laughs> it's such an important, you know, it's not our, it's our choices that are important. Lana's totally my Dumbledore. She really is. <laughs> That's
2: right. Very wise. That's part of why. That's part of why. While we're on the subject
0: of houses um, and values, I wanted to get some thoughts on Hufflepuff because the other three houses arguably uh, trait-based, so, you know, the Sorting Hat sings a song and, you know, Ravenclaw's where all the the smart people go and Gryffindor's where all the brave people go and Slytherin's where all the ambitious people go, but Hufflepuff like, is often seen as the leftover, the dreg's house. Um, but really when you dig into it, it's about loyalty and fairness and hard work and it, it's really to me like a values Based house, and I kind of wondered whether or not that's why Cedric got chosen as the champion.
2: I will say right now that um, my entire opinion of Hufflepuff is based on the musical puffs. Yeah, it's it's like one of my favorite works of probably my f- absolute favorite work of uh, Harry Potter fan art, and and yeah, I mean they're all I would say they're all values based houses, but Hufflepuff. I feel like they really have the the values that we all prize, rather than just the the flashy braves, you know, and the slithery snakes and the the obvious value on smarts and intelligence. But Hufflepuff is is really where, you know, the magic happens. <laughs> um, the hard work, the loyalty, just the the earthiness. There's an earthiness um to Hufflepuff's that Gets stuff done, you know, and 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 gets it done well and with heart, and um, I, I just, I just really, I, and I think that that musical really, um, is it, it really shows what's essential to Hufflepuff and sh- and shows us how that's something that all of us value really.
3: Well, and I think one of the challenges though, Emily, is that they are regarded as what does Haggard say, a load of duffers or something like that, you know? Um eloquent. Well and- <laughs> there's, like, you know, and that tends to happen when you have like, I don't know, fraternities or school clubs. Like, there's one where you get the, you know, the kids who are not the cool kids and they're, you know, more off, a little offbeat or something. And what I find really interesting is that their, you know, their cachet or whatever is like nil. <laughs> they, they're not the cool, they're not cool, but they have these values. And I think that's an interesting. You know that that some people wouldn't want to be in Hufflepuff. I don't know that it they, their values are appreciated as much as some of the other ones. But ultimately, I think the story suggests that the Hufflepuff values are really, uh, really extremely important. And you see that with Cedric; he's such a good embodiment of those values. And even though he could really dislike. Harry and be vindictive or whatever, he's actually ends up being pretty kind to him and apologizes when, when other people uh, don't treat him well. And he rises above in a way. And it's one of the things I don't like about the cursed child. And we can talk about that if you want, but the cursed child, like imagining that if something, you know, that somehow Cedric would, would become vengeful toward Harry for being humiliated. Like that just doesn't ring true to Cedric's character at all, at all, at all, Um, right, especially from a values standpoint, you know. Right.
0: There's one little line, and you know I'm big for, like, going into tiny snippets of dialogue and making huge big meaning out of it, but there's one little line where Harry tells Cedric about the dragons coming up and the thing that Cedric does is he doesn't just go, oh, cool, I know, you know, my advantage. He says to Harry, why did you tell me this? He wants to know what Harry's motivation is. And when Harry says it's only fair that we all know, that, I think that really speaks to Cedric and his values and he accepts that as a reason for being told. Like, And so he takes it on board and then he pays the favour back by telling Harry to take the egg into the bathroom. But I think that was a really good clue to Cedric's personality. He's like, why, why are you telling me? What, what are you getting out of this? And when Harry makes that declaration that he's doing it out of fairness, I think that's when Cedric kind of accepts it.
3: Yeah, and can I just, I, this is taking it in a different direction, but, but not, not totally different, but, you know, the people who are fans of the Harry Potter story, like who hasn't been sorted into your house? That's something that everybody wants to do. And I think it's really interesting to think about how the house sorting plays out among fans. And when I first did old school Pottermore, like way back, I was sorted into Slytherin and I was like, Right. This, that's, Slytherin, that's no good. Slytherin. I know. It was like, oh, no. Like, how do I adjust my worldview if I'm looking at it through the eyes of Slytherin? And then there was all kinds of like, <laughs> all the people who were in Slytherin were like, don't panic. We're actually pretty nice. <laughs> you know, and it was it was a way to try to soothe the various people who'd gotten sorted into Slytherin because it was un- unpopular. But then on the new Pottermore, you had to start over. And as I was redoing the quiz which I know is probably just random anyway I tried to answer all the questions I was like what would be the least Slytherin answer (laughs) to this question like let's make my choices uh you know make a difference here and in fact I was sorted into Hufflepuff the next time and I was like I think that is like the anti-Slytherin I think Hufflepuff is the antithesis to Slytherin not Gryffindor and uh and so in that way I was like Yeah, be a Hufflepuff. (laughs) This is so funny
1: to me. Like (laughs) When I did the original, I don't think I've done the newer Pottermore, but when I did the original one, I got sorted into Hufflepuff. And I was like, hell no, this can't be right. I mean, Mm. because I always fancied myself, you know, Gryffindor. But it's funny because it really made me look at that and say, oh my gosh. I mean, maybe I do have those Hufflepuff values. And I realized, I mean, from my perspective, I was like, I feel like it's like a social work house since cuz you know my my master's degree is in social work and that's around that time of my life that that first pottermore came out. But yeah, I didn't want to be a hufflepuff. I didn't really see myself in that house, but it's interesting because once that happened it forced me to see hufflepuff like through new eyes and recognize that I did have maybe these aspects of myself that I hadn't thought of, but also that I was always kind of a an outsider when i was growing up i didn't fit into any of like the typical cliques of like high school for instance and you know and so i could be friends with people from other groups but i never felt like i fit into any of them
3: yeah that's really interesting and i think you know what was interesting too is that i think the people who are hufflepuff harry potter fans also are like really big into let's <laughs> pump up our Hufflepuff identity. Uh, and the, the play Puffs, which Emily was talking about, it really hits this idea that you have this house that's kind of ignored and, you know, that's not as respected as the other ones. And yet they're really, I think they, they do have really great values. And and of course, Newt Scamander has brought a little Hufflepuff pride as well. Yes.
2: <laughs> yes. Love it. Love it. You know, I think I just have a real positive attitude toward, and I'm not a Hufflepuff. I'm actually a Gryffindor. Like every test I take is like, before I can even click like my answers, they're like, Gryffindor, Gryffindor. Like th- this You're one's like Gryffindor, the Ron you know? Weasley. It barely, <laughs> the sporting hat barely, <laughs> touches barely touches your head. It touches my head. But you know, when I was in like, okay, third, I think it was third grade, there was this new girl. And she just decided that the best way to gain friends and influence is to sort of unseat me from the little social group. So I don't know why I was picked. I was just picked. And so she kind of like ousted me and all the girls that I used to hang out with. Yeah, they, they all kind of turned their back on me like at her you know, in under her influence, which was kind of a really interesting situation, not nice at the time. But I remember consciously thinking to myself, all right, there are like two or three kids in this class, I don't know. They were kind of like the ones that other people thought were the duffers, you know, not popular, didn't care about clothes, didn't care about social status, kind of did their own thing. And I thought to myself, I'm going to get to know these kids, because I don't have any other options. And I want to have some friends. I'm a people person, right? And I got to know those kids, and they were the coolest kids, and I'm still friends with them. Aww. And, and I think that's why I'm always like such – even though I'm not a Hufflepuff, I'm a Hufflepuff fan because these are the – kids. and they, it was funny because they introduced me. Two of them were um, – one of them was a twin, and her twin was in the other class, and she was – really good friends with this woman who ended up being my absolute best friend of all time and like musical partner. I mean, so, I mean, just such a great move, you know, to, to get to know these people. So I think that's why I'm always so, I think, I think people think they, they know what they want in in friends and colleagues and things like that. But what they actually want is Hufflepuffs. <laughs>
3: <laughs> but <laughs> so they Emily, were being honest. <laughs> isn't this an Emma and Chris, you can help me. Isn't this positive disintegration, what you just described? That you were in a situation where you felt like you knew who you were and you knew who your friends were, and then you had this unsettling, disintegrating experience and you had to rethink that. And it was a pink positive. That's cool. Yeah. It's definitely a retreat. I'm (laughs) I'm new to positive disintegration. So
1: no, that does seem like you had an experience like that. And I think like really you identify positive disintegration through the dynamisms that emerge in your life based on a situation like that so if you go through something and you find yourself you know struggling with different dynamisms for different levels of development right and so I mean shame. guilt Not shame which way sure is but also you know when a lot of I think when you're younger you may be more likely to have like ambivalence or um, you know be caught up in what he called the second factor which is like when you're worried about what other people think of you or so really what we're hearing from you Emily on that was that you were like breaking out of the second factor and and saying okay well I'm not going to buy into you know like these social scripts and I'm gonna talk with these kids who aren't popular and get to know them and yeah it's an interesting thing
2: yeah it definitely like took popularity evacuated it of any kind of authority in my life I was like, okay, so if this happens, it's great. And if it doesn't, it's probably totally random. Because I could see, even as a third grader, I could see how random it was that this girl just picked me to oust, you know, from the group and take my place. So I could, I could see the kind of arbitrariness of it. And that really was very formative for me moving forward.
3: I'm mad for sure. at those other friends, though, Emily. I'm mad at it, me other too. Engineers. I think they were they mad at themselves after
2: a few weeks because I went and, and made myself perfectly happy with these other kids. <laughs> and I'm sure you're, you're fun,
3: like you're you're de- the ta- this collection of desks you're at is the fun col is the fun desks in the third <laughs> well, grade. These I'm kids sure. I got to
2: know were more fun, more mm-hmm. interesting, more creative, yeah. more intelligent than any of those other kids. And that's what that taught me about popularity is that that's not where you're going to find the most interesting people. You but, you know, that, that is so, that's
0: so Harry. That's so Gryffindor because when mm-hmm. Harry goes to Hogwarts, who does he pick as his friends? Not Draco, not the popular kids. He goes straight for Rod. Muggle-born. Who's out, right. Yeah, who's outcast for being poor. And he right. goes for Hermione, mm-hmm. who everybody else thinks is annoying, but he starts to appreciate the fact that she's got all this knowledge. So he yeah, makes friends with, you know, yeah. everyone. And Neville
3: you know, Neville. Yeah. And Luna. I was thinking about Eventually. Luna when we were talking about yeah. this, you know, and he goes to the party with Luna as, you know, as his date. Love that And I, Love you that. know, he's like, you know, Luna's cool. What, uh, Luna, can you be, will you be my date? She's like, cool. <laughs> so, and she's like, she's so interesting and she's really definitely super not cool. Um, and then for her to be brought into that friendship group and uh, that, that scene where they go, to her father's house and they see that she has their pictures in the room and friends, friends, friends. I mean, I can hardly even say it without choking up. It's so beautiful about the power of friendship. Uh, she's she's and- not
0: only, you know, not cool, she's also super authentic. She says yes. exactly what she's saying and she believes what she believes and doesn't care if everybody else is picking on her for what she believes and she's always exactly Luna. And never mm-hmm. tries to be anyone else, even if it you know, gets her a complete ribbing.
1: True. Well, let's yeah. move to the next question of like questioning one's values because that's exactly what we're talking about here. And you already brought up positive maladjustment, which order of the phoenix and umbridge and creating this Dumbledore's army together, <laughs> like to fight back. I mean to me, like there's so many spots. Do you think that's right, Emma? I have to admit that I like, I have such a rusty knowledge of, of Potter right now because I haven't gone back and read the books in several years.
0: I think you're right. I think that's a moment where they, they innately know that just because this is coming from a place of authority doesn't make it right. And they rebel, even though it could get them into a hell of a lot of trouble. And eventually it does but that's just pushing against that status quo. And you, you don't see any of the Slytherin kids sort of pushing back against it or questioning it. They, they're they all on board. They want to all join that inquisitorial squad. They're going to toe the line, um, but not Harry and his friends because they understand that there's more important things to be doing. And I think even though some of the kids that joined Dumbledore's army maybe they're there for curiosity, or maybe they're there because they want to hear about Harry's story. Um, But but ultimately, they're there because they know this is the right thing to do, they need to prepare. And what they're preparing for is to ultimately to fight against Voldemort, which is a really scary prospect. But they're taking that on board anyway.
3: Yeah. And one of the things I think is really interesting in book five, I was going to try to bring this up because I think it fits so well with the idea of Positive disintegration, as I've sort of read a little bit about it in preparation. So, at the beginning of book five, when the members of the order come to collect Harry, do you remember they give him the disillusionment charm? And it feels like he's getting you know,
0: crept over his
3: head. Yeah, the cold feeling uh-huh. around. It. And I thought, how, it's so interesting disillusionment charm? And of course, it's serving a particular purpose there. But I was like, that's telling you. <laughs> Something is going to be happening to Harry, uh, and the way that he thinks about the world and various people. And uh, I think book five is very much about you know the process of him trying to figure out who he is. Right? Suddenly he's a like he's a criminal. He's you know definitely at odds with Umbridge. I like how Hermione is able to hear Umbridge's beginning of the term speech, and everybody's like you know blah, blah, blah. And Hermione's like, no, we got, we got to look out for this one. (laughs) Cause I subtext guys, subtext. That's right. She's like, I, there was a lot going on and right. So seeing this authority figure and for Hermione too, like she has to come to understand that not all authorities are to be obeyed um, or even respected. And that's such an important part of maturity. I was thinking about in general. So important to think about this concept of positive disintegration with these teenagers, which is what we're following from 11 to 17 through the series. That's the time when you have a lot of those, you know, struggles and questioning of like, um, you know, what, what would I be if I didn't have all these things around me, uh, you know, telling me what I was supposed to be, or my parents telling me what I'm supposed to be. And I think Harry is figuring out so much in that book five, um, as he's disillusioned with some of the wonders of the The magical world. Thankfully, though, he's got Sirius,
0: who is an absolute role model for rebelling against everything and doing your own thing. And the the book that we've got coming out, my essay's on Sirius. So, you know, I've done a lot of digging into this, but he had a family that were pro-Voldemort, basically pro getting rid of the Muggleborns and having the wizards and the purebloods rule and he just rebelled against that his entire life he He rebelled against the the cool thing at school to a certain extent because he didn't really like he yeah you know, he was cool and obviously he probably enjoyed some of the intention but to a lot of things, like Sirius just marched to the beat of his own drum and you know he had to go through that thing of disowning his own family and being accused of being things he was not and you know, putting up with that stint in Azkaban. So I think Harry was quite lucky to have this father figure role model in his life that sort of said, you know what? It had to sit him down at one point when he was having those dreams about, you know, Mr. Weasley and thinking that he's turning into a monster. And Sirius is like, no, that we've all got light and dark in us. And it's the part that you're acting on that, that's important. And trust me, I've been through this.
3: Right. And I love the thing that he says, too, about how the world's not just made up of good people and Death Eaters, so that he's adding some complexity to it. And you're absolutely right. Like, he's such a great model of the, you know, the rebellious spirit. And of course, you know, there's there are ways that you can think, well, Sirius kind of takes that pretty far. But it's great for Harry to be able to see that. And to see that, you know, you can strike out. And I definitely think like Sirius really had to do that in a very, a very harrowing way with distancing himself from his family. Yeah. You know, I you
2: guys are just being brilliant and I just can't agree more. And I just I will also say, Emma, your are cha- I've always loved Sirius, but your chapter really made me appreciate him and and his um, nonconformity um, in a new way. So it's it's definitely recommended reading
1: where are we seeing instances of dynamisms? Meaning where are we identifying like uncomfortable emotions in characters? Where are other points of disintegration? And I'm trying to think of like other people than the, than like Harry, you know,
3: Hermione and
1: Ron even.
3: There's so much of that. And I think Emma actually suggested this and I was like, yes, yes, yes. Dobby is just a great example. And in fact, his emotions and uh, his drives are so hard for him to accept that he even punishes himself for having them <laughs> you know he's not allowed to he's not allowed to speak out against the family the you know the malfoys and so he's constantly punishing himself for having them and yet he does persist and he is to me this is i mean this is my like this is my my, my reason for being with this book is Dobby's journey toward self-actualization and his movement from being an enslaved, unfree uh, being who nevertheless knew what was right and wrong. You know, he knew that Harry was somebody who right, was fighting for we, the dregs of the magical world. And he did the right thing, even when it flew in the face of tradition, and even when he felt he had to punish himself for what he was doing, because of all of those internalized uh, boundaries that he was crossing. And he gets free. And then it's really hard. It's hard for him to be free. Like he's, he's wandering around, we don't see him wandering around, like trying to get a job. And like, it's hard out there for, for, for a free house elf, elf. And so he, he, even when he's free, he doesn't, he doesn't have it easy. It's not like a, like happily ever after for him. And so then we see him in these other ways uh, developing over the course of the story until, you know, Dobby has no master. Dobby is a free elf and he is then able to do this amazing act of heroism at the end that to me just speaks so much to the power of freedom and really being who you are so that you can see what's right and fight for what's right. And for your friends. Well, you just gave me goosebumps. I feel like that was a perfect example. (laughs) I just
2: love Dobby so much. Yeah. 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 Same Katie, you know, um, second, all that about Dobby. Um, but you know who I started thinking of is uh, really two people. So one is Mrs. Weasley, and I think I'm oh. I- identifying with her at this stage in my child's life. I only have one child, not seven. Um, but but you know he's he's going through some kind of like you know I'm I'm learning having to learn to like let him go and let him do his own thing and not you know keep telling him over and over you know just wait and see if he does it himself and. Also, you know, he's starting to spend the night away from the household, you know, and it's, it's kind of new and different. And I think the pandemic has made it even more challenging because it, it all got pushed back a few years, you know, this, this stuff. But I'm, I'm thinking of Mrs. Weasley in the way that she has to watch her, even her youngest children become soldiers almost, you know, become people who are in the fight And she wants to protect them, you know, she wants to protect them, keep them home and keep them safe, but she can't do that. And she has to learn that, um, especially over the course of, you know, like what, five through seven, books five through seven. And that's really hard for her. And I, I really identify with her as a parent. You know, the other person I thought about was also Lupin and how, you know, over the course of book seven, he has to finally figure out that he's worthy of love and of family and of you know being being a parent and being a, a husband and um that he can't just run away from these things um even even if they're scary and he fears you know his own inability to do it well um and he has to figure these things out um and he does and and you know you know unfortunately he kind of pays the ultimate price in the end for for sticking in the fight and, and sticking around. Um, but those are, yeah, I feel like those are a couple characters that really have to go through reckonings.
0: I was going to say Lupin's the guilt and shame poster boy. He, like, oh, he, yeah. he feels guilty just about who he is. Not even, yeah. he, he doesn't have to do anything wrong. He just feels shame, so much shame self, over who he is.
3: self Yes. Yeah, so much yeah. self-loathing. And, you know, I think a lot of people are really disappointed with him when he leaves without a fight at the end of book three, he's just like, yeah, nobody's going to want a werewolf for their kid's teacher. So I'm just, I'm going to head out now. And uh, you know, for the fan reaction to that is like, why didn't he stay and fight? And, and I mean, I think that's easy to say when you're not, you're not in that category of people, you know, and, and Mm -hmm. he feels that shame because he's definitely been made to feel that way over the course of his life. But then he does really come into himself. I think that's a great example Emily but then you know it's not easy for him it's not easy for him to accept Tonks uh then Tonks's love and then mm-hmm. the idea that you know he actually has an important role to play in his son's life it, it's hard for him and then when he goes out like he's going out on his terms and mm-hmm. doing again doing what's doing what's right and what needs to be done and to me that's exceptionally powerful mm. i also wanted to say also about your um mrs weasley i was like you know yes yes we want to protect them you know as their soldiers against you know murderous evil but also like how hard was it to for her to accept fleur as bill's oh wife <laughs> <laughs> I'm, so that I'm, was the first i was like oh she's going to talk about fleur and then you we were talking about oh no she wants to protect them from death yes yes but also from the villa yeah <laughs> Right. Right. Yeah. Until
2: until Fleur showed a little bit of real substance, you yeah. know, and and the ability to love uh Bill, even even when his looks were gonna be gone, you know. I think, you know, that was her concern. It's like, are these two gonna stick together when they're not so pretty anymore? You know? Mm-hmm. And uh and as soon as Fleur showed any indication that she wasn't there for that <laughs>
0: Mrs. Weasley's like, well, okay. Well, a bit more than that. I think it's because Fleur just told her to fuck off, basically put her in her place in a very visceral way and said, you know what, you're thinking about this wrong. Shut up. And to Molly's credit, she She took that, that, took it on board went, oh, maybe I am thinking about things the wrong way and was able to sort of reflect on how she'd been acting and went, you know what, I've been a real dick. um, And they, they were able to move on.
3: I had assumptions about Fleur that were not, that were based on prejudice, I think, you know.
0: I, I've got two examples. One's probably, I guess, more straightforward and the other one's a bit of a fan, fan theory of mine. So where I see dynamism's most boldly is actually with Dumbledore so when Dumbledore was young he was in love with Gellert Grindelwald and he was all about that for the greater good shit you know he had this stuff from his youth that had obviously sort of tainted his views toward muggles but he was fully prepared to walk out into the world and seize power with Gellert but then all that shit happened with Ariana and he was forced to really self-reflect and say, what do I believe? And he transformed from someone who was you know, young and arrogant and all about seizing power to someone who was inclusive and acceptive and all about protecting the muggles. And he went through a ton of guilt and a ton of shame and a ton of dissatisfaction in himself and no doubt had to sit back and say, who the fuck am I? What are my values? What am I fighting for? Like that would have been a monumental moment of disintegration for him, no doubt. We don't see it directly in the books, but if you look at where he started and where he ended up and the fact that he's with Harry and King's Crustacean at the end, like just saying, I really stuffed that up. Like I, he still felt guilt even after he'd passed away about that. So that's one place where I really sort of see that playing out. Um, and the surprise one for me is actually Dudley. Harry thinks yeah. to himself when Dudley gets attacked by the Dementors, what could Dudley possibly feel bad about that the, you know, because the Dementors make you really your worst memories, right? But I've got a theory on that. My theory is that the Dementors made Dudley – look at all those moments of his life where he'd bullied Harry and he'd bullied other kids. And I think they made him feel a bunch of repressed shame and guilt that he was in denial about. So, you know, Vernon and Petunia were like all about the, yes, they just babied him and coddled him. And I think maybe that's what I alluded to before when I said Dumbledore spoke about the damage inflicted on Dudley. They put him in a state of denial about who he really was inside and you'll notice that from the Dementor attack point he was different. to Like he left Harry alone. He left him the cold cup of tea. He had a change of heart at the end and shook Harry's hand and said he didn't think he was a waste of space. And that's what I think. Dudley actually went through his own moment of, a oh, crap, you know, who am I? Who have I been? And I think he felt a whole heap of those dynamisms and a whole heap of that self-doubt. And that's what I think he saw when the Dementors attacked him.
3: You know, I love that. And one of the things that's been my great s- dissatisfaction with the last novel was that I didn't think we got that with Draco. I felt like with you know, with um, Dudley, we could see mm, there's, you know, there's some growth and, and change there. and And Dudley, like there's something kind of interesting going on with them. And with Draco, I didn't see that as much. I do think, you know, Draco, I was thinking about this in terms of positive disintegration, and I'm not sure exactly where it fits. But I think the whole Malfoy family is having, you know, some tension over you know we're we're purebloods and we want political power and and uh, you know domination over wizarding society and certainly over muggles, but then when they see what what it's like and they see that it's actually I mean it's really taking over their family and it's taking over their relationships and it's putting them in jeopardy and I think that Lucius and Narcissa are actually very bothered by how. Draco is put in danger, like not dissimilar to Emily, what you were talking about with Mrs. Weasley and ultimately where do they end up? They're loyal to each other as a family. And you can see some of that. I'm not sure that's, you know, that's not as as high an ideal of, you know, as maybe I had wanted. And it's definitely not. I, I never think of Draco as having a moment of redemption, but at least it does show that they are valuing their family over this ideology and the ambition that they had placed in it and so there's something there that makes me think that they as a family would maybe be changed at the end of it
1: I think there's something to that you know I think that they move out of you know that very like integrated state that they're in of you know like all that what you just described and they go into the you see that there's a possibility like the the possibility exists that they could rethink and disintegrate but I I also agree that they don't get there and it's too bad because I was I don't know it's interesting to me like I I can tell that in my mind some fan fiction has like bled into my memories of reading the books because (laughs) because you know I think that like so many people when I hit the end of the books and I'd read them more than once I like dove into fan fiction and it's really interesting when you get into fan fiction because you see Like what upsets other people about the story and they try to make it right in their own writing and they take the relationships that they think are important and write about them. And there's so much in the fan fiction world about Draco, Draco redemption stories, you know, uh, Draco and Harry as a couple or or like whatever, you know, I mean, it's, it's just fascinating to me. There's so much that you can do with these characters and like put them through their trials that you come up with if you want to. But that's obviously a whole different
3: path. <laughs> yeah, no, I do love that, though. I mean, because what that does is it it shows you that the fans are looking for some growth from these characters. And, you know, if, you know, the author's not going to give it to me, well, I'll, I'll just make that one myself or what people call headcanon, which I love. <laughs> It's just in my head, this is absolutely the way the story went and should have gone uh, all along. And I agree with that. And something I think is interesting about those, you know, the romantic pairings, whether it's Harry Draco or Hermione Draco or or whatever, I think they're interesting partly because, and I'm saying romance, but we know it's often very quite physical, um, that there is some kind of, I don't know, like some kind of apology, some kind of, you know, um, reconciliation that that's supposed to be representing. And I just find that to be really interesting, you know, thought experiment through narrative. Agreed.
1: Well, in headcanon, I've never heard of that. So yes, thank you. That's very,
2: (laughs) I can, I can tell that I have my own headcanon for sure. Mm, Yeah, definitely. Like me and the musical puffs. So (laughs) just basically my headcanon. It's like, I need to check
3: that out because I haven't heard Mm. of it. You so will good. love it. You will love it. It's so and it's fun, but it has so much heart and it truly is right in line with the values of the series yeah. itself. I just love it. Genuinely I also to say, great story. Yeah. Emma, I wanted to respond to what you said about Dumbledore's transformation too. And one of the things I think is interesting is um that, you know, he's still flawed for sure, right? And one of the things that is problematic is that he kind of leaves Harry to discover his flaws after Dumbledore is gone. <laughs> and this sends Harry into another phase of disintegration, I think, right, where he's got to decide, like, wait, if Dumbledore wasn't a good guy, then what am I doing? And then he has to really come to own his own values and not just say, I'm Dumbledore's man, right, so that he has to come to it for himself. And he and
0: does not grave, ironically, when he's Yeah. Gone. Horcrux's Hallows, do I trust the Dumbledore? Do I follow that path? And by the time he meets up with Aberforth in Hogsmeade, he's, he's made his mind up, but he had to take, you're right, he had to take that time of self-reflection to say, what do I believe? What do I trust? How how do I want to act?
3: Right. Yeah. And not to assume naively that the side of good is represented by perfect people. Um, And, you know, I think, Aberforth even pushes him on it like, why are you following my brother? (laughs) And so that Harry really has to own it. He has to make very conscious decisions along the way once he decides. And to me, that's an extra phase of maturity that he has to, you know, again, to really understand that he, you know, he's imperfect and so are some of his heroes. I'm going to
0: ring composition this and circle it all the way back to the beginning. The power in the headcanons, the reason why people in fanfics want resolution, the reason why people are still looking at these books um, and they're seeing their own journeys reflected here is because it shows that people are going through their own stuff like this. And even if they don't have the labels from the theory to put on it, you know, maybe they are going through their own disintegrations. Maybe they are feeling dynamism. Like Emily told us she was feeling this way, you know, in third grade. It happens to kids, it happens to teenagers, it happens to adults. And we're all going through that continual process of trying to figure out, you know, who the fuck we are. You know, what do we value? What's important? How should I be behaving? And I think that just, shows the importance of us trying to get the theory out there because once people have these frameworks and whether it be in something like fiction or whether it be from the theory it helps us make sense of those journeys and I think that's really why I gravitated to the Potter series in the first place without even understanding what the hell it was about because when I was deep in these books and rereading them all the time I was going through a really shit period of disintegration. I couldn't figure my life out. I didn't know who I was. And now looking back on it, I see that the reason why they spoke so powerfully to me is because it was describing something that I was going through myself.
3: That's really powerful, right? I agree with that too. And I think literature can serve that purpose, but also really good to be be conscious of these processes. And we're in a society that, sort of suggests that we should be happy all the time, you know? And if you're not happy, like what's wrong with you? (laughs) We need to give you some, you know, take some drugs or like get some therapy or something. But that actually powerful and difficult emotions are important. And I think the books show that as well.
2: Right. And then they also give us this story that has a lot of promise in the end. And it's not it's not the promise of no, no more troubles or or every everybody lives happily ever after you know it's an alchemical story, so it does end in pure gold and the the transformation into pure gold, but it you know there's there is that loss along the way um but you know it helps us understand that loss as a contributor to our ability to you know reach that golden state in the end. Emily and Katie, I'm so
1: glad that you joined us and all I can think of is I hope that you'll come back because for one thing, I would love to talk with you all about Snape, and like there's just Ooh. other characters. I we just oh, have to yes. come back, I think, and do like another whole episode. Worms a lot,
3: can of worms a lot. <laughs> yeah, this was fun though. I'd love to come back. It was. Thank you. It was.
0: thanks so much for for coming on here. It, it's been fantastic, and you know it's good to host you guys on our podcast and. I I love working with you guys on Podiversity um, and it's been fantastic to have you here. So thank you so much.
3: Same.
2: Yeah. Thank you. Thank you both. Thank you, Chris. Uh, Always a pleasure. Thank you.
1: It is always a pleasure.
0: And thank you listeners. We really appreciate you joining us on this journey and we hope that you got as much out of it as we did. Continue your path to authenticity through the links in the show notes. Subscribe to our Substack newsletter for stacks of cool things delivered straight to your inbox explore the Dabrowski Center, email us, or join us on social media. And don't forget to show your love by liking, subscribing, grabbing some positive disintegration merch, or leaving us a rating or review on your podcast platform.